Um, as we begin 1 Samuel, 1st, um, 2nd Samuel, we're, we're probably going to be in these books for the better part of a year, um, which isn't uncommon for us at Revolve, if you're new to Revolve. You know, but introduction sermons are always a little different because we're maybe used to going right into a text and unpacking it, um, which is what we normally do. But with an introduction sermon, we're kind of introducing everything. And so I realize for some of you, you've been around the Bible for, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years plus, and you are fully aware of what First Samuel's all about and, you know, where it's, where it's at in the Bible and why it matters, why it's in the Bible at all as opposed to not being. Um, and probably there's a whole lot of you who you say, I focus on the New Testament because the Old Testament's are really confusing. And so you're not even quite sure what First Samuel is about, except apparently there's a guy named Samuel in it, you know, and he's hopefully somebody important. Otherwise, they really had a weird name. And, um, and so maybe that's kind of where you're at. And so what I want to do today is I want to set the pace and set the stage here for First Samuel so that when we go into First Samuel and you read it either along with us at home or whether you are reading your own stuff and then you're coming here and listening, you understand what's going on. I love preaching through narratives, narratives, which um, narratives meaning stories, right? We did First and Second Kings a couple years back. Probably some of you remember that if you were around. I love preaching through stories because people love stories. I mean, people love stories. Stories connect us to something beyond the everyday stuff of life, you know, and stories are, are they're about heroes, they're about struggles, but they're also really mirrors into our own lives. I think that's one of the reasons why we enjoy stories. Now, parents, you understand this. Once you have kids, you understand this. Before you have kids, you think you understand it, but you don't until you have children and you're watching a Disney movie and you're like, I don't know why I'm crying, <laughs> right? And because you're, you're relating to some character, right? Whatever the character might be, that there's this thing going on and you're relating to the character and there's something in you that the story stirs. That's the power. I know, it's hilarious. That's what stories do. They teach us without lecturing, without getting under our skin, um, without making us feel all of the complexities of human life. You know, sometimes even the heroes that we're drawn to are kind of two-dimensional. In literary terms, they call that a Mary Sue. A Mary Sue is a character who's good at everything and they have no flaws, yet somehow we feel drawn to them, right? Even though we are very much aware of our flaws. Stories aren't just an escape. They're teachers. They help us navigate reality. Think about it. If, I, if someone said to me, what's Jesus like? I have a couple options. I could say, well, Jesus heals people. He's compassionate. I could say that. Or I could say, you know, let me tell you a story about Jesus. There was a time when he was, he was walking through the countryside with his friends. And, you know, they had just come off this situation where, like, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they were getting all up in Jesus' face, and, and his disciples were all excited. And all of a sudden, they see, just a few feet away, they see a leper. Now, leprosy is extremely contagious. And back then, you got leprosy, and you were basically, you're going to die once all your fingers fall off and your ear falls off, and it was not good. And the lepers, they'd walk around, and they would say, leper, leper, so that you would know not to come near them. Unclean, unclean. Well, the leper comes up to Jesus as everybody else is recoiling. And the leper comes to Jesus, and it says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. 
And while everybody else is recoiling, it says Jesus reaches out and touches him and says, I am willing, be clean. Now, which one is more powerful and stirring to your soul? To say Jesus is compassionate and heals people or to talk about the fact that Jesus crosses over social norms and barriers to reach out and show compassion. That's the power of story. And that's why preaching through narratives is so unique. Now, you probably don't remember this, but if you're, you have a fifth grader, you know, remember that old TV show, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? Uh, your fifth grader knows this, that every story has key elements. Every story has key elements. It has a setting, it has characters, a plot, conflict, theme, and a point of view, okay? And so what is a setting? A setting is the time and place where the story takes place. You know, a good setting can really enhance our understanding of the characters, whether it takes place in the tundra or the desert. Those are important um, features. Every story has characters. Those are the individuals who drive the story forward. You know, they can be protagonists, they can be antagonists, they can be supporting characters. And as characters are well-developed and complex, it makes the story even more dynamic. Then you have a plot. The plot is the sequence of events. And we were telling the kids when we were preparing for music, we were saying, you know, with music, you kind of climb through these ups and downs, these mountains, and that's called a crescendo and a decrescendo, and it's how we build the music. But it's the same way in a story that we have exposition, we have rising action, we have the climax, climax, we have falling action, we have resolution of the conflict. All of those things are within stories, unless it's a French story, and then it's just really boring. And then you, we have conflict, right? Central struggle and problems that the characters face, whether those are internal or external. Themes, what's the point of the story? You know, it's the battle of good and evil, or it's about coming of age. Like how many coming of age stories, like the Goonies that we love, right? It's about these guys, these young boys becoming men, right? These coming of age stories, that's a theme. And then you have point of view. You know, is it first person, is it second person, is it third person? Third person omniscient, as in someone who's like out of the story and they're telling us the story. Well, what I wanted to do this morning is I wanted to unpack each of those things for you in the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel, which are really one book in the beginning, just called Kings. Actually, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings were just the books of the kings, okay? And so what was the point of view? What is the setting? What are the characters of 1st and 2nd Samuel? Well, from a point of view perspective, 1st Samuel, 2nd Samuel is told from a third-person, omniscient point of view. In other words, the author knows things that the author shouldn't know. The author knows things like God sent an evil spirit to torment King Saul. Or the author tells us what a character is thinking in their heart, right? Which is very unique because sometimes I don't even know what I'm thinking in my heart. But the author knows what this person is thinking in their heart. That's because the scriptures are inspired What that means is that God used men carried along by the Holy Spirit to write down what he wanted them to write down. It doesn't mean he dictated in their ears. It means that the Holy Spirit led them in that process of creating what he wanted them to write. But we also need to know that this is both a mixture of humans working, God using their unique gifting, personality, like is that guy a shepherd? Was he a prophet? Was he a blacksmith? Like what was his profession? as well as the Holy Spirit. And so we need to know that authors also have a purpose. Authors have an agenda, if I can put it that way. And what I mean is that from 
the book of Joshua through Samuel is very clearly establishing that David is the rightful king. That is the agenda of the author. Now, if you look at the greater body of narrative from Joshua through 2 Kings, you realize that the the redactive authors who are kind of like pulling this together as a story, um, they have an intention of explaining why the kingdom went into exile. And so there's a purpose, there's an agenda to the stories. That doesn't make it propaganda, but you need to realize that the story is explaining there's a theological rejection of God. And that helps us understand the story that God has a plan. He's had this plan since Genesis. Long before the monarchy existed, we saw little bits of prophecy pointing towards the fact that there would be a king. That we see when when, uh, Israel blesses his sons, he prophesies over Judah and he says, kings will come from your line. That's why we say line of the tribe of Judah. Okay? And so he's, the author has an agenda, a purpose here, showing that the Israelites violated God's law, but God responded with mercy and grace. So that's the... That's the, the point of view the, um, of it. But what about the setting? The setting is probably the most important part for our purposes today. You know, 1 Samuel takes place in the nation of Israel, what's called the Promised Land, around 1100 B.C. to 1000 B.C., roughly. That's the general time period and place. But to truly appreciate the story, and where I want to spend most of our time here today, to truly appreciate the story, you need to understand the setting of 1 Samuel within the greater body of the Scripture. Because 1 Samuel is a continuation of a story, and when you zoom out and look at the Bible from a 30,000-foot perspective, you realize the Bible also has exposition, introduction of conflict, hints towards resolution, a building towards a climax, and then an unpacking as it follows the climax. The Bible has this larger picture. You know, people tend to think that the Bible is just a bunch of disconnected stories, but it's not. It begins in the beginning, a very good place to start, where God is through an expository way, through exposition, is unpacking for us, this is the way the world was supposed to be. That we see this, this, uh, this perfect creation right? Reinforced over and over again. It was good. It was good. It was good. It was very good. We see this harmony between God and man, between man and animal, between nature. We see this perfect utopia, which we know as the Garden of Eden. But then in Genesis chapter 3, we see that the entrance of an enemy. Literally, the name Satan is, it means the adversary, We see the entrance of an adversary. We see the villain of the story is introduced into into our plot. And the villain of the story, his weapon is not with a sword and a bow, but the villain comes in and he whispers. He's a whisperer. Did God really say you shouldn't eat from that tree? Maybe God doesn't really love you. I mean, why would he deny you something? And we see that because of the conflict, because of the villain being introduced into the story, we see that some of our main characters in the beginning, Adam and Eve, though this is really a story about God, we see that they fall prey to his actions and they rebel against the king because God is the king. When God created Adam and Eve, he said, you are image bearers and you have a relationship with me. We call that covenant. And he says, also, you have a responsibility to reign in my place as little kings under the big king. 
But those little kings, rather than following God's law, in other words, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, those little kings rebelled against the king of kings, and they went into open rebellion, insubordination. And because of that decision, we see that the villain gets a foothold in the globe, and the curse of sin enters and cracks everything. There's not an area on earth where the curse of sin has not infected like a disease. But as the story continues and we see the result of that, it falls into chaos and the, the, every person's heart is just bent towards sin. But then God says, I'm going to fix this. And what he does is he isolates a man who has no kids at that point in time. And he says, this man is going to be his family is going to be where the solution for this comes from. And he makes a promise, a covenantal relationship with this man named Abraham. And he says, from you is going to come a seed that is going to bless the whole world. There's going to be something comes from your line that is going to be a blessing to the whole world. Pointing forward to Jesus. But in the coming, in the coming chapters, we realize that there's a lot of problems. I mean, when's this seed going to show up? When is this ancestor going to arrive? Because we're waiting for him, and we're waiting for him, we're waiting for him, and things seem to go from bad to worse. And before you know it, Abraham does have some children, but now his great-grandkids, they're all in Egypt, and they're enslaved. And we think to ourselves, how on earth is God going to take this and, and somehow turn this into redemption and blessing for the whole world? They're in slavery, but then we see that God shows up on the scene and he says, I'm going to raise up a deliverer for you right now. And he sends in a man named Moses and through Moses as a sort of conduit with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, God declares war on the pagan gods of Egypt and on Egypt's God, Pharaoh, and he declares war against them. And with his series of plagues, he basically attacks each of their deities. And then finally, as Egypt is crushed, as he pierces Rahab, that's the, the poetic term for Egypt, and rips her carcass apart, he then takes his people out of slavery within her, and he brings them through a new creation symbolically represented by the parting of the Red Sea as they pass through the waters. And then God brings them onto the brink of the promised land, and this is what God says to them. He's looking back to Genesis chapter 1. He says, I'm the king, and you are my people, and you will be like a kingdom of priests that I will be the king, you'll be my people. I'm gonna give you my law so you can see how my people should live. Following this law doesn't make you my people. I already declared you my people when I saved you from Egypt, but this is how my people must behave. Otherwise, I'm gonna remove you from my kingdom. I'm gonna remove you from my promised land. And so every, all this, this new group of, who have come out of Egypt, these, these Israelites, they say, that's great. We're just glad to not be slaves anymore like whatever you want, and they agree to it. But then immediately we realize that these people cannot live up to the expectations of the king. That's incapable. They're incapable of doing so. And so God introduces another factor, and that factor is blood through sacrifice. He says, you're going to use this blood, and you're going to have to, you're going to, have to satisfy my wrath by by sacrificing these animals. And when you sacrifice these animals, there'll be a temporary satisfaction of my wrath for another bit of time. But you're gonna have to keep doing this and keep doing this and keep doing this because an unholy people cannot live among a holy God. We see that in the book of Leviticus. And so finally, God brings them to the, to the edge of the promised land and he says, 
I want you to go in. You're going to take this over. And they go to go in, but then they get scared because they look at the warriors of the land and they're giants like Goliath, and they're giants. And they say, we're not going in. No way, no how. There's no way we can defeat those giants. And because of their unbelief, God says, now you have to wander in the desert for 40 years until this generation dies off. And then with your children, with the next generation, I'm going to give them the promised land, which is what happens. And so in the book of Numbers, they simply wander around in the desert, waiting and waiting and waiting to die off. And then we get to the book of Deuteronomy, that the old generation has passed away. And then Deuteronomy, which means second law, Deuteronomy comes and Moses unpacks the law that was given in Exodus and Leviticus all again. And he says, look, your parents messed this up. I'm going to give this to you a second time. Do you agree? And they say, we agree. He says, you sure you agree? Yeah, we're sure we agree. And then Moses breathes his last And then the next leader, this guy named Joshua, comes on the scene. Joshua, who is, by the way, just a really old version of Yeshua. It's Yahshua, right? The same thing as going to be Yeshua, which is where we get Jesus, just a transliteration. So the same name as Jesus, basically, for all intents and purposes. And so here we have Joshua is coming, and he's going to lead a conquest of these lands and basically kick out the old inhabitants, these giants, right, who are in, in, the, in Jericho, and they're going to move into their houses that they built, that they didn't build, the var- gardens that they didn't plant, all those kinds of things, and they're going to take over. And the book of Joshua is all about that, the conquest of them coming in under the, with the army of God, following Joshua as the commander, and taking all of these lands over. And they don't take it all over. There's some failures along the road. And what they realize in those stories is that when they trust God, there's success. But when they don't trust God, there's not success. And Joshua ends with the land not all being taken over. And then Joshua too dies. And now the question in our mind is, who's in charge? And in the story of the book of Judges, they're in the promised land, but no one's really in charge. God is supposed to be in charge, but how do you follow God if you don't listen to his voice? And that's the problem. And so we see these cycles happening in Judges where the people stop listening to their king, Yahweh, and then they turn from him. And then what happens is they reap the consequence of having the Philistines attack them. And then they cry out to God. They remember, oh yeah, we do have a king and his name is Yahweh. And they repent. And then God raises up a tribal warlord or a judge who is going to deliver them. And then the warlord kind of reigns over this geographical region until he dies. And so the problem is you just see the same problems happening again and again and again and again, and Judges is a mess, like a total mess. You know, we say, oh, Samson, you got big guns, but Samson's a mess. Like he's not allowed to touch dead things, and he's killing people with a donkey's jawbone, right? All the things Samson does are violating the law, but God in his mercy still uses him to deliver God's people from the clutches of the Philistines. And then as you get to the end of Judges and things keep getting worse and worse, we see this phrase repeated. In those days, everyone did what was right in his own eyes because there was no king in Israel. Now, was there a king? Who was the king? God, God was the king, but they weren't listening to the king and they weren't following the king. And so they were living as if they had no king. And then we get to the book of 1 Samuel. 
get to the book of 1 Samuel, and we realize that Samuel is going to be the last judge before the entrance of the monarchy. So that's the, our setting. Our setting is this, this messy world that is just where it's barbaric and people are killing each other and then they come up with solutions that are even worse than the problem. And we don't have time to get into all that. Maybe we'll talk about it another time, but it's a mess. And then we have three main characters in the book of, in the book of 1 Samuel. Samuel, who is the last judge, who's also a prophet and a priest. We have Saul, who's gonna be the first king of Israel who's a mess, and then we're going to have David, who is the king of Israel that God chose because he's a man after God's own heart. And the story of First and Second Samuel is really just this climactic rising and falling of those three characters, the rise of Samuel, and then as he falls, the rise of Saul, and then as he falls, the rise of David. And when we get into Second Samuel, it's all about David, his rise and his fall as well. You see, because what we realize is that there's this key theme which comes up in the book of First and Second Samuel, and that is, what is your heart like for God? And, uh, and we're going to keep coming back to this theme time and time again, but I want you to get this lodged in your brain, that the difference between Saul and David, the difference between David and Samson, the difference between David and Jephthah and David and Ehud and David and all of these other judges is that Saul thinks about God when he has to and when he's exhausted everything else. I mean, who can relate to that? See you later, God. I'll call you when I get cancer, as Jim Gaffigan jokes, right? Saul turns to God when he has to and when it's too late. David is a mess. I mean, the dude kills his best friend, sleeps with his wife. But David's heart is bent towards God. That's the difference between them. See, one of the temptations is to read this like, well, David is good and Saul is bad. No, they're both idiots. But the difference is that Saul is not focused on the Lord. David, even in his idiocy, at times is. And so what's the plot? The plot is we have a corrupt nation People reject God as king, and they say, we want a king like all the other nations. God gives them that king. Saul becomes the, first, becomes the first king. He's a liar. He's sneaky. He's arrogant. God rejects Saul. God raises up David to be king. And the book ends with Saul dying and David becoming the king that God wanted all along. Conflict? Well, there's lots of conflict. There's tension between God and his people which leads to tension between individuals who aren't living according to God's created way. There's tension between Saul and Samuel, between Saul and David, between Saul and his own son, Jonathan. There's really conflict between Saul and himself, between Saul and the Lord. There's inner tension within David, where God spoke over him, but David is waiting until he is king. And so there's this tension of, did God really say that? Is God really going to do that? Should I take my, 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 my life into my own hands or should I walk by faith? All of these things are on David's mind. In terms of themes, there's really a few big themes that we see in First and Second Samuel, but the, they're all under the umbrella of kingship. And then we realize that there's, this is all about God's kingdom reign. 
We see God's kingdom reign in every page of First and Second Samuel. What do I mean by that? We, we see his sovereignty because he's a king. Sovereignty meaning that God can orchestrate history to accomplish his purposes. That he's not a puppet master because puppets aren't alive. He's far more controlling than that. Because how controlling do you have to be to be able to somehow move and zig and zag with puppets that move on their own? But despite human free will and decision to choose evil continually, God accomplishes his purposes. That's how powerful and providential and sovereign he is. We see that he's powerful, like the king over everything, to redeem situations for his purposes, which makes us look forward with joy to Romans 8, 28. For we know that for those who love God and are called according to... For, let me back up. Sometimes I talk so fast, I skip lines. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. We see his kingdom reign as he has sovereignty and authority over all things, over the journey of their lives. As one commentary said, the course of life is different for each individual, but the same God, not fate, consistently and graciously guides one's life. We see God's control over details and timing. We see God sovereign despite mankind's sin and failure. He redeems and restores even wicked things for his purposes. We see that mankind's sin cannot hamstring God's purposes because he is ultimately king over everything. And this sin and grace and mercy unfolds continuously in the story. It ultimately points back to the Messiah King, Jesus. But all of this underscores God's kingdom. And then we see as under that theme, mankind's monarchy under God's kingdom that we were created to reflect God's rule and have a relationship with him, and that when we disconnect relationally from God, we misrepresent him in our rule and our reign. That's the kingdom and covenant tension. That mankind's kingdom success is ultimately entirely dependent upon his covenantal reality, his relational health. In other words, when you cut your relationship with God, your life doesn't get better, is the point there. And that's why God says we need a king after his own heart. So really, it's all about kingdom. But what about for you guys? What about for us? As we think about the end of this, as we wind down here, what is the point of 1 Samuel, Bill? What am I going to get out of it? Okay, well, First and Second Samuel are about Israel's two first kings. You know, let's summarize here, Saul and David. Um, it's about who they were, how they came to the throne, and how they fared. But more than this, the books are really about the king of all kings, God. And in these stories, as we look at them, we catch glimpses of what God is like, what he has done, what is life like with him, what is life like when we abandon him, and what life can be like if we walk by his grace and by his power. These stories are our stories. If you are a follower of Jesus, the Bible says you are a spiritual child of Abraham. That means that these stories are your stories. This is our heritage as well, spiritually speaking. That David is the, is this, is the great, 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 you know, generations removed, 14 generations removed of Jesus, great grandpa. This is our story as well. 
We realize that as we look at these stories, all these main characters, Samuel, Saul, and David, they're sinners. But what makes them or breaks them is their response to God. No one's a good character here. And that, all of this is to say that as we read, we need to be careful and prudent. Um, when I teach Bible at the school, I always tell the kids about Sunday school theology and how you need to avoid Sunday school theology. And what I mean by that, Sunday school theology says, Sam's, like I said earlier, Samson's a good guy, Saul's a bad guy. They're all bad guys. The only good guy in the Bible is Jesus. He's the only good guy in the Bible. Everybody else is a sinner, and some of them are saved by grace, and some of them harden their heart like Pharaoh. But we can look at these characters, and we can see our own weaknesses. We can see our own desires to want to draw near to God even though we fail. We can look at these characters, and we can learn from them as examples positively, as examples negatively. The point is that there's still much for us to learn from these characters, not to just view them as disconnected stories. There's much to learn about biblical masculinity. There's much to learn about leadership. There's much to learn about what it means to follow hard after God. And through this all, we have to remember that First and Second Samuel, ultimately, in the greater meta-narrative, the big picture from Genesis to Revelation, in the meta-narrative of Scripture, First and Second Samuel is simply setting the stage for Jesus. And so, as we journey through this, we're going to keep praying, we're going to keep learning, and we want to keep those things that we talked about last week, which Steve mentioned, fixed into our minds. Lord, build your kingdom by your power and for your glory in us and through us from here to the ends of the earth. And we're going to keep asking, Lord, what do you want me to learn from these people and from these stories that I might become more and more a person after your own heart and not someone who just lives for myself. Does that make sense? I mean, we're basically out of time, but anybody have a question that you're like, well, you didn't talk about this. I'm not scared. Are you? You have a question now? I'm glad you guys got it figured out. All right, let's pray. Father God, I know that introduction sermons can be a little uh, different from just reading a story and unpacking it, but I pray, Lord, that because of the time we spent setting that foundation, we would be able to better understand as we go into First and Second Samuel over the next year. God, we want to know you. We want to be more like you. God, everybody in this room is either like Saul or like David. God, there's people in this room who are like Saul. There are people in this room who, Lord, they just only want to come to you when they have hit the end of their rope. Lord, and then there's people who are like David and they know they're a mess, but they know that they need you. God, I pray that we would be more like David. God, it doesn't mean we're going to be perfect, but to be a person after your own heart, to want the things you want even though we know we fail but your grace is enough. So we thank you for David. We thank you that David is a tortured guy. We thank you that he's kind of a mess because we can relate to a mess. We can't relate to perfection. God, give us a heart like David's heart and help us to grow as we journey through this together. In your name we pray, amen.